Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day that we can come gather together to get to know you better. Of course, to get to know one another better and to feed off each other's thoughts and what we've gleaned out of the scripture in our time of fellowship and prayer in the groups. But then we come in here to get to know you better, the living word through the written word. And that is such a privilege that we have, such an honor to be able to get to know the creator God of the universe and to get to know the redeemer God, our, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that you are teaching us through these types. It is so exciting. Thank you for the heartburn that I got again these past two weeks as I studied about the gospel you presented long ago in Moriah. Thank you for um, these women and for their hunger to know you better. And Father, I would pray if there should be someone here who has never come to know you in a personal way, that she would be um, saved today. And uh, that would just be wonderful, wonderful. Lord, now just go before me. Help me to speak quickly because there's so much to cover. Uh, you know that. And I just thank you for the ladies' patience when I do go over. Um, but just help for us to lift up your son. May he alone truly be glorified today in our words and in our hearts. For we do pray in his name. Amen. What were you doing over there talking? All right, Isaac's almost. Now, you see, there's going to be three sacrifices we talk about this morning. There's going to be an almost sacrifice. Did Abraham actually have to sacrifice his son Isaac? No, it was pretty close. You know, God's timing is perfect, but sometimes he takes us right down to the wire, doesn't he? So it was an almost sacrifice. Then there was an animal sacrifice. So there's really two types of Christ in this lesson. Isaac and the ram, and then there is an actual atonement sacrifice, and that would be, of course, the sacrifice on Calvary by the Lord Jesus. So Isaac's almost sacrifice by Abraham on Moriah, or in the land of Moriah, is the mountain peak of prophetic types regarding the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ on Mount Calvary. And this story also includes his resurrection, his third day resurrection. Although there is a greater prophetic type for the Lord's resurrection. And that's given to us in by who? In the whale? Jonah. Jonah is the greatest prophetic type of the Lord's third day resurrection. But this right here is the mountain peak of types as far as Christ's atonement work on the cross. And we can be confident. You know, this study is Old Testament Christology. So, and we are talking about what the Lord Jesus likely taught on the road to Emmaus. Well, we can be really confident that at least in some of his post-resurrection teaching, for 40 days after his resurrection, he taught his disciples. We can be confident that sometime during that teaching... He focused on Genesis chapter 22. When we come to Genesis 22, we come to holy ground. Maybe we should take our shoes off. Now, this is a holy ground chapter of the scripture. Because this, you know, remember he's telling them about how the Old Testament had always spoken of a suffering Messiah. 
Well, this really shows us that. So I know he taught this to his men, his disciples. However, having said that, someone reading Genesis chapter 22 for the very first time in their lives, let's say someone who has no knowledge about the person or the the nature of God, someone who has no idea about his redemptive plan for mankind, and someone who surely has no idea whatsoever about prophetic typology. And they come to this chapter and read it. Their reaction would be, they'd be horrified. They would absolutely be horrified. They would question why anyone would want to serve a God who asked a father to kill his own son. Right? And you can understand that. That sounds more like something Satan might request. Like the pagan god Molech, you know, he, he requested that people would sacrifice their own offspring. This doesn't sound like God. So you could understand somebody coming to this chapter and say, well, I don't want anything to do with that God. But the truth of the matter is that the God who gave the sacrifice command of Genesis 22 is neither cruel nor impersonal or unloving. In fact, His love for fallen mankind is so great that he did give his only begotten son in order to make our salvation possible. Abraham served as a human illustration of what Calvary cost the father. Abraham here is a picture of God the father. Um, And although as finite beings, which we are now, finite, we can never plummet the depth of the Father's agony in pouring out the full cup of his wrath against sin upon his own son there on the cross. We can't even enter into that, can we? What he went through? I mean, but, but we can get a little bit of an idea by looking at what Abraham likely went through in offering his son. Well, Genesis 22 also presents for us in prophetic typology through Isaac, the love of God the Son. In Abraham, we have demonstrated the love of God the Father in giving his only begotten son. In Isaac, we have picture of God the Son in willingly laying down his own life so that from his death we might have life. So this this chapter is really not about a hateful God. It's about a loving God. It, It doesn't reveal to us an irrational, brutal God. On the contrary, it presents a God who is love personified, isn't he? Isn't that what 1 John 4 says? God is what? God is love. There would be no love. If it wasn't for God, he is the source of all love. And so it's very appropriate, really, that we find. And so because he is this kind of God, a God of love, and he's worthy of our worship and he's worthy of our reciprocated love. It is very appropriate that it's in this chapter that we find the word love and worship for the very first time. And we're going to talk about that. Very interesting. Those two words appear In chapter 22, you'd think they'd be before that because there was a lot of love going on for the 2,000 years before Abraham. um, And there was a lot of worship. But 
the Holy Spirit held off Moses from using those two words purposely until he got to chapter 22 and this historical account. And we'll, we'll return to that subject. Well, by the time of this chapter, Abraham is now in his 130s. <laughs> um, he has been enrolled in God's school of faith for some 50 to 55 years. And over those, that period of time, it's a long time to be in school, isn't it? Um, over that period of time, he has learned to trust the Lord, even though he doesn't understand everything that the Lord is doing. Do you trust the Lord? I hope so. But do you understand everything he's doing? No, I don't either. But uh, part, of his, part of his learning process, and probably part of all of our learning process, was um, separation. It involved a lot of separations. Abraham encountered a lot of separations. He, had, he was separated from people. He was separated from places. He was separated from situations. And the reason for it was some of those things stifled his spiritual growth or they would have hindered his spiritual growth so he was separated from his his um original land where he grew up Ur of the Chaldees he was he was uh, separated from his relatives some of you say oh that might be good <laughs> he was separated from uh his father's house he was stripped and this is a good thing and the Lord does this too with us. He was also stripped of some of his schemes. Remember his scheme for self-preservation? Lied about Sarah being his sister. Uh, when she was really his wife and his sister. <laughs> but um, he did that twice, you know. We skipped one chapter where he did it again. But he was stripped of his schemes. He was stripped of his uh, er, fleshly efforts to accomplish God's promises his way and that was via Hagar so he was stripped of some lots of things and then the the most difficult one that we discussed last time was when he was even stripped of Ishmael his firstborn son he obeyed the Lord by putting Ishmael the son of the Egyptian handmaid Hagar from his home that was a very very grievous thing for him to have to do well, then for 30 years after he did that, we hear of no more. Well, we don't hear of any trials. So I'm sure he had some, but they were so minor that they're not recorded in the scripture. For 30 years after Ishmael was cast from him, he lived in relative peace. I'm sure he and Sarah enjoyed watching Isaac grow into manhood. And I'm sure they spent a lot of time laughing with him. Remember, Isaac means laughter laughing together about the lord's goodness to them in their old age and giving the, them this son and so everything for 30 years going smoothly and then all of a sudden and isn't that how life can be all of a sudden one phone call can change everything well abraham got a phone call from heaven <laughs> uh-oh and uh it changed everything he came without warning he came suddenly face to face with the fiery test of Genesis chapter 22. It was a shocking trial for him. But it was the zenith 
of years of God's working in him. This was all the other trials we're getting to, this big one. And that fiery test is the greatest prophetic, I've said this already, but it is the greatest prophetic picture of the gospel of Christ at Calvary that the Lord ever painted. Which is why our title is the Gospel of Moriah. Isaac's almost sacrifice took place in Moriah. And by the way, do you know what Moriah means? Clear vision. And they think it also has Yahweh in it. Moriah, Yahweh. To see clearly Yahweh. Get it? Clear vision. It's got a lot of meaning in it, but one reason that they probably called it Moriah, the land of Moriah, is because if you've been to Jerusalem, or you probably just know this, even if you haven't been, but the city sits up on that Mount Zion, and any from anywhere you approach, you can see it from afar off. You have a clear vision because it's raised higher than all the land around it. So it's appropriate title. So the sacrifice took place there because God was connecting it He was connecting the almost sacrifice of Isaac with the actual sacrifice of his son, which would take place in that same location some 2,000 years later. Now, the Lord never gives his people a fiery test without first having properly equipped them to face that test and hopefully to pass that test. This was Abraham's final exam. You remember those? And he had been equipped to take this test by years of trials and tests that had stretched his faith. He had learned that ultimately everything centered on the promised seed of the woman, the Savior. Bottom line, everything ultimately was all about that. And that Savior was to come through his seed of promise, Isaac. Now, having reached... The spiritual maturity level, and don't panic because it took him 130 years to get there. None of us have arrived yet to that age, I don't think, right? (laughs) But he has arrived at the spiritual maturity level of having now absolute, and I mean absolute, confidence in God's word. That's a good place to arrive, isn't it? And he knew He knew without a shadow of a doubt that God would fulfill his promises, his covenant promises concerning Isaac, you know, that through him, the Savior would come through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed, etc., etc. Abraham knew God would fulfill those promises no matter what. No matter what. So he was able to stand firm when his tranquil life was suddenly disrupted by the voice of one he had come to know so well. He knew that voice. That was the voice of his good shepherd. And the sheep know the voice of their good shepherd, especially when they call his name, their name. And that's exactly what the Lord did. He called Abraham. It was a soft way for the Lord to begin what was going to be the most shocking command that any person alive has ever faced or received I should say from God can you think of an, an a more shocking command to get from God what if you heard that 
I want you to go and kill your son. I would think that wasn't God, wouldn't you? I said, that can't be God speaking to me. This is a shocking command. Absolutely. By the way, let's read the passage. I think we should. Normally I don't because we are covering so much territory at one time. But we only have 14 verses. So let me read it real fast. Look at um, at, uh, chapter 22, starting verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt. It says tempt in the King James, but it's actually the word nasah in Hebrew, which means to prove or to test. He was God tempts no one for evil. So he's testing Abraham and he said unto him, Abraham, see there he is calling his name. And Abraham answers, he says, behold, here I am. And he, that would be God, said, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham argued. (laughs) Uh Uh-uh. Abraham tried to reason with God. Abraham procrastinated. No. He rose up early in the morning, saddled his ass, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering. That's amazing. And rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Because you can see Moriah, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, Mount Cal. You can see it all from a distance. So he saw, saw it from afar off. Verse 5. And Abraham said unto his young men, the two servants, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder. Did you know Abraham was southern? We'll go yonder and worship. Ah, first time the word worship is used in the Bible, right there. I'm going to go yonder and worship and come again unto you, or to you. That's a prediction of a resurrection right there. <laughs> and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. Verse 7, and Isaac spake unto Abraham, his father, and said, my father, And he said, Here am I, my son. And he, Isaac, said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now, if you don't have this next verse highlighted, starred, underlined, whatever, in your Bible, you really, really should. Unless you're one of those that says, I can't mark up my Bible, then okay. You should see mine. You want to see mine? Look at this. (laughs) It's literally falling apart. Um... All right, verse 8, and Abraham said, my son, God, will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. You notice how that's said twice. They went, both of them, together. Perfect harmony here between father and son. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, And laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand. And took the knife to slay his son. And just in the nick of time. The angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said. Abraham, Abraham. Three times his name is said in this chapter isn't it? Abraham, Abraham. And he said for the third time. Here am I waiting for you what took you so long (laughs) 
Verse 12, and he said, the angel said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from who? From me. Who is this angel of the Lord? None other than the pre-incarnate Lord, Jesus. Uh, where was I? Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Oh, there is so much in there. Last time I taught this, I spent three weeks doing it. So hang on to your booties, cuties, because we're going to have to fly now. <laughs> I'm doing it in one lesson. Um, when he heard his name called, actually what the Lord was doing, I said, is a soft way to begin this terrible command. But it was also a subtle reminder to Abraham that through Isaac, he had been promised to be the father of multitudes. It's a reminder. It's like calling from heaven. Hey, father of multitudes down there. Go kill your son. You know, not very, doesn't sound very reasonable, but how does Abraham respond? He says, behold, I am here. And then what followed left absolutely no doubt. It was crystal clear what the Lord wanted from him. There's no ambiguity here at all. He makes it clear uh, who and what he wants. Five times in verse two, Isaac is mentioned. He's called uh, thy son, thy only son, then his name, Isaac. Then he's referred to as the one whom thou lovest. And then it says, offer him five times. So Abraham knows what the Lord is telling him to do. The term thine only son in, in reference to Isaac is used three times <laughs> in this chapter. We find it in verse 2, verse 12, and verse 16 which reveals to us why it was so important for Abraham to have cast out Ishmael. Even if Isaac died without an heir, the covenant promises would not have been fulfilled through Ishmael. You get that? In God's eyes, Abraham only had one legitimate son, Isaac, born from his legitimate wife. Then after referring to Isaac as, as both Abraham's son and his only son, the Lord then identified him as Abraham's beloved son. Likewise, Jesus was, is the beloved son of his father, isn't he? Love is one of the most important words of the scripture. Because as I said earlier, God himself is love. He's love personified. And this is the very first occasion of the word love in the scripture. And it's so interesting to know that. Was there love before this? Of course there was. But this is the, the Holy Spirit held off Moses from writing that word until he gets to Genesis 22, uh, verse 2. And what would you think? Where would What would you think... Um, God would write love about, that was a bad sentence, but maybe the first time you'd see love would be about God loving the world. That's why he created the world. Loving Adam, that's why he created man. 
Or maybe you'd think it'd be about when he first saw his wife Eve, <laughs> you know, in the love of uh, a man for his wife or a wife for her husband. Or you'd think maybe the first time would be in reference to a, a mother and her love for her child. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, it had been about Sarah finally having a child at the age of 90. But none of that's when we first see the word love. The Spirit waited to use this word so that it would be used by the Lord himself from heaven in reference to a father's love for his son. Interesting, isn't it? Furthermore, it is used for the first time in connection with that father's sacrifice of his beloved son. Mm. Well, what about the New Testament? Where does the word love first appear in the New Testament? You know, the New Testament starts out with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Interestingly, the first, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all start, at, have the word love used in, in the same exact occasion. And it is when God, for the first time, spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. All three, that's the first use of love. Well, what about John's gospel? Anybody want to guess where does love first appear in John's gospel? We all know the verse. Exactly. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So you put all that together and you know what you have? You have the most magnificent love letter God could ever write. Because if he loved his son so much, which he he does and did and will continue for all eternity to love his son, dearly beloved son, and who's he, in whom he's well pleased, and yet he's willing to give, sacrifice him for us because he so loved us. What does that say about his love for us? Unbelievable. Yeah, that's the only word. Unbelievable. Well, the Lord offered Abraham no explanation whatsoever for his command to sacrifice one through whom the covenant promises were to be fulfilled. So to all human logic, it seemed very unreasonable and uh, even ungodly. I mean, God, why are you asking me to do such an ungodly thing? <laughs> That's what I would wonder. It's just doesn't make sense so Abraham's response is perhaps the single greatest act of obedience to God by a mere man other than Christ this is probably it I can't think of any greater one can you I, I racked my brain out of this has got to be it his obedience to kill his son he doesn't argue with God he doesn't question God he doesn't try to intercede on behalf of Isaac, as he did with Lot, and as he did with Ishmael, he doesn't even procrastinate. You know, I think I would wait a while before I fulfilled that. It says he, he rose early the next morning and prepared himself to obey God. By the way, did you notice that the passage doesn't mention Sarah at all? <laughs> mm, there's a reason for that. It is generally assumed... You wait 90 years to have a kid, you know. It's generally assumed that Abraham did not share with her. Why do you think he got up early? <laughs> he didn't share with her what the Lord had asked him to do. 
What do you think would have happened if he had shared with her what the Lord had asked him to do and that he was going to do it? I think Abraham might have been that burnt offering, don't you? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (coughs) So he gets up early. He saddles a donkey, fetches two young men to accompany him. By the way, was there a donkey involved in that other path to the sacrifice 2,000 years later? Yes. Was there um, two men? Were there two men associated with that path to the sacrifice? Who accompanied the Lord on the Via della Rosa? Two thieves. This is all so interesting. Just so fascinating. Typology. That's why I wanted to love typology. So um, he's got the donkey, two young men, secured the wood for the sacrifice, and they set out to go to the place that God would show them, told them about. I don't know about you, but I think if I was Abraham, I might have taken a lamb along with just in case God changed his mind. (laughs) But there's no mention of a lamb, is there? Uh, Now, the land of Moriah was a three-day journey from where Abraham was then living. He moved. He wasn't living in Hebron anymore. You know, after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Think about this. Everybody he had rescued from King Ketelamer in that 10-king war was burnt to a crisp with fire and brimstone i mean he had saved those people and now they're all gone and i think it was just very very he wanted to get away from that area so he moves to the land of philistia he is now living in a place called beersheba of philistia and from there to the land of moriah is a three-day journey now during those three days abraham's heart was I can't imagine a father's heart being any heavier than this. His heart was heavy. He was on a mission. What was his mission? To kill his own son. We know he kept silent about his assignment. He not only didn't tell Sarah, but he didn't tell the two young men, and he didn't tell Isaac either. So I don't think there was probably much conversation going on on that three-day journey. I think the whole time Abraham is focused on Isaac's impending death. I mean, that's all he can think about. He sees no solution to that impending death because at all costs, he knows he is going to obey God. He's going to obey God. And yet his reasoning also goes like this. He firmly believes that God will fulfill his covenant promises to him. So he's got a dilemma. How is this going to work out? And he comes to the conclusion that the Lord is simply just going to have to raise Isaac back to life. After he kills him, he's going to have to raise him back up. Now, that's amazing faith. There had never been a resurrection from the dead before this, you know. Never. And you know how they slayed the the sacrifices with the knife. You know, they slit the throat. And then a burnt offering is burnt, totally consumed, until there's nothing left but ashes. And yet he believes that he's going to raise him back up to, to from the dead. That, that it really is. No wonder he's called the father of faith, right? But there was something that Abraham had experienced that helped him, enabled him to believe that God would raise Isaac up even from the dead. I was just reading exactly what it says in Hebrews eleven nineteen. He believed God would raise Isaac up even from the dead. I'm not making it up. He really did believe that. What was it that Abraham had experienced uh, that helped him believe that? 
Exactly. He had experienced God's power to bring life out of death when Isaac was conceived. Because both he and Sarah had been as good as dead. <laughs> That's what it says in Hebrews eleven twelve. They were dried up. They were as good as dead. So although for three days he is sorrowing his son's impending death, yet his hope is in the resurrection. Would be that the disciples had that kind of faith, right? And they'd been told over and over again that he would rise on the third day. Well, if Abraham had the scripture like we are so blessed with, if he had even a page of some of the New Testament scripture, he could have figured out. Now, remember, he didn't even have one, one word of written scripture. But he could have realized that the uh, burnt offering sacrifice of Isaac would have been utterly useless. It, told, it would have been a, a waste of, of uh, human life. It would have been a vain offering completely because his shed blood and his death would have paid the wages of nobody's sins. You know that? Not even Isaac's sins. If he had died, he wouldn't even be covering his own sins. And God doesn't ask people to do things that are stupid. That, that would be, well, he did, but he wasn't going to go through with it. It's all, you know, a picture. Isaac was a man, right? So he could die as a kinsman because he was a man he was even a godly man but was he a sinless man no he wasn't because even though he was miraculously conceived he still was conceived by the seed of his father and he inherited the adamic sin nature so his death would have done absolutely nothing to satisfy god's holy justice for sin here's here's the secret God never, ever had any intention of allowing Abraham to actually slay his son. Never, from the very beginning. The whole incident was a prophetic picture of the actual atonement work of redemption by the sinless kinsman redeemer. You see, Jesus, God, became our kin. That's another southern word, right? He, became, he had to become a man so he could be our kin, <laughs> our kinsman redeemer. It's all a picture. Also, this whole episode is a proving test for Abraham, isn't it? It's a test. Part of the test was to see if he valued the gift, Isaac, more than the giver of the gift, God. A lot of people put an idol, even children, between them and God, if you put anything between you and God, that becomes an idol. You remember that rich young ruler who came to Jesus? He wanted to, he said, I want to follow you. And what did the Lord say? Go home, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. That was a test, ladies. That was a test to see if the wealth was his God. And it was, wasn't it? He didn't want, if he had said, sure, I'd be glad to do it. And the Lord can read the heart and knew he would be willing. He'd say, don't, no, 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 no. I was just seeing just use that money, invest in heavenly things. It was a test. Well, so far in Genesis, um, oh, by the way, part of the test too was to, to, not, you know, to, to obey God without knowing how he was going to work all things out together for good. 
which is where we are in life. You know, we, we know he's going to work all things out together for good, but we don't know exactly how he's going to do it and the end result. Well, we do know the end, <laughs> the ultimate end. But um, what, what happened is Abraham actually kept his son by surrendering his son. Well, we have now come to three gospels that have been presented to us in picture types. There was the Gospel of Eden, Genesis 3.15, which was pictured by a woman's seed crushing the head of a what? Serpent. And the serpent, of course, bruising the heel of the woman's seed. And that's, you know, the suffering Messiah. Um, Then there was the Gospel of Ararat, or you could call it the Gospel of the Ark, which was pictured by a huge boat with how many doors? One door which is Christ, he is the door, and that ship, that boat, was the only means of safety from the floodwaters of God's wrath against sin. Even pictured the resurrection of the Lord, didn't it? Remember when the ark finally uh, came to rest on Ararat? On what day? The 17th of Nisan, the very day Jesus rose from the dead. Amazing. That's the gospel of Ararat. And now we have the gospel of Moriah. See, the gospel wasn't just reserved for the New Testament. Each one of these about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as Abraham approached Mount Moriah on the third day of his journey from Beersheba, he lifted up his eyes, it says, and, and I give you in your notes, which have already been sent out, by the way. Um, there are the set first seven times in the scripture that it talks about someone lifting up their eyes and beholding something. Make sure you read that. It's really exciting. It's, it's another presentation of the gospel. But he says he lifted up his eyes. He saw the place afar off. So he could see, you know, where they're going in the distance. And so henceforth, the journey is going to be a time of privacy between just the father and the son. Abraham tells the two young men that accompanied them there to stay with the donkey while he and Isaac go forth to worship. You know what worship means in Hebrew? To bow down, to bow down. This is the very first time that the word worship appears in the scripture. Did anybody worship before this? Yes, there were altars built. There was lots of worship before this. But again, it's so enlightening to find that the spirit held off Moses from using that word worship, just like love, until it was in the context of a father sacrificing his beloved son. Word studies can be so enlightening. They really can. That's why everybody needs to have a a concordance. You can do word studies. The the most supreme act of worship for Abraham and Isaac was that they both bowed down in submissive obedience to God's will, even when there was no explanation to a very, very painful commandment. Uh, To worship God, to worship God, is to worship God necessarily singing to God? A lot of people think, you know, it's a worship service when you sing. Well, singing is part of worship, but true worship is to acknowledge that God's ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. You know, even when we don't understand, we acknowledge that, we believe that. True worship <clears throat> is trusting, and these were Abraham's own words that he had used. 
when he was interceding on behalf of Sodom. He said, well, will not the judge of all the earth do that which is right? Abraham, I'm sure, thought of those words himself as he's going to Moriah. Will not the judge of all the earth do that which is right? When you come to believe that, that's true worship. What Abraham and Isaac did at Moriah is the most beautiful example of human worship in all of the Bible. And that's why the word was reserved for this incident here. Now, another fascinating feature about verse 5 here is the calm. You notice the calm assurance of Abraham's departing words to those two servants. He says, I and the lad will go yonder <laughs> and worship and come again to you. Who's going to come back to the servants? Who? I and the lad. Hmm. That's not a statement of deception. He wasn't trying to deceive them. It was the greatest statement of faith in Abraham's life. Right there. He believed that he and Isaac both would return to the servants and to Sarah. <laughs> even though God told him to slay Isaac. And even though he had every intention of doing just that. Slaying his son. Offering him as a sacrifice. Abraham believed God would uh, <clears throat> fulfill his covenant promises by simply raising him back from the dead. So not only do Abraham's words to his servants here tell us that this was his thinking, but we have dogmatic proof of it because Hebrews tells us this was his thinking. Let me read the whole passage from Hebrews 11 to you. You can just listen. But it's in verses 17 to 19. It says, by faith, Abraham when he was tried, not tempted, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now here's what Abraham was thinking. Accounting, that means he put this all together in his mind. He accounted, he figured out, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Abraham received Isaac in a figure. You know what that Greek word is for figure? Typos. T-Y-P-O-S. So when I say Isaac was a type of Christ, it's not just me speaking. The Bible says he was a type. He was a figure of Christ who would be raised up from the dead. Uh, <clears throat> now Abraham then, all right, he, we know this is his thinking. So he takes the split wood and he lays, he leaves the donkey with the men. So who does he lay the wood on? Isaac. He puts it on the back of Isaac, his son, verse six. That load of wood carried up a mountain would have been a very difficult task if Isaac was the young boy portrayed in so many of the Bible picture books our children have. You go home and look at some if you have them around. Young, young kid, right? That would have been a hard task for a young kid to do. He wasn't a young kid, boy. And I say that based on information that we know about Sarah. How old was Sarah when she had Isaac, when he was born? She was 90. Okay, look at chapter 23, verse 1. How old was Sarah when she died? The very next thing after this chapter is she dies. They came home and told her what, what they had done, and she had a heart attack. There. <laughs> Could be. 
but she died. All right. So how old was Isaac when his mother died? Very good. 37. <clears throat> Her death takes place shortly after this incident here. I don't know. It could have been a year or two or three. I'm, I'm joking about the heart attack thing. She might have lived a couple years afterwards. Um, so whatever you do, the figuring is that just like Jesus, who was how old when he died? 33 in the prime of his life. Isaac, when he carried his load of wood, what did Jesus carry? The Calvary, the crossbeam. He carried his wood. So too was Isaac in his probably mid-30s, young to mid-30s. Maybe, if I guessed, guess what I'd say. <laughs> 33, yep. Now, the word lad, you look at the word lad and you say, no, no, you're wrong, Catherine. He is a lad. Well, the word lad in Hebrew is not restricted to a young boy. It's used of males from youth to manhood. Benjamin, the younger brother of Joseph, was called a lad, same word, even after he had fathered 10 sons. <laughs> Furthermore, a mere boy could not appropriately serve as a figure, a type of Christ in his willingness to go to the cross, the altar, because he would not be able to resist his father. A young kid couldn't resist his father. He probably would resist his father. He'd try at least. Um, and he certainly wouldn't be able to fully understand the situation. This was not the case for Isaac, because even when he did understand the situation, he doesn't argue, he doesn't complain, he doesn't try to resist. In fact, once he understands the situation, that he is to be the lamb, the sacrifice, we hear nothing more from him. Just like Christ, he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, he was dumb and opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. Isaac trusted his father because he knew how much his father trusted his father, his heavenly father. If Abraham was not so frequently presented to us as the focus of this story, the true hero would be Isaac. And I think far too little is said about Isaac's worship, his willingness to bow down, because he is so often presented as being much younger than he was. You see, as a child, he is portrayed as having no cho choice in what took place. But he did have a choice. He had a choice. And he, if ever there was a literal living sacrifice, it was him. He was willing to be a living sacrifice. That's amazing. Isaac had great faith. So Isaac went forth to Moriah under the load of wood on which he was to be bound as a sacrifice to God. Abraham went forth to Moriah holding in one hand a stick with fire on it and in the other hand, what? A knife, a knife. Um, with the knife, he would slay his son. With the fire, he would be consumed. It was the father who carried the instruments of of judgment fire speaks in the bible of of judgment <laughs> and the knife speaks of the execution of god's justice it was the father god the father who executed judgment on his son in our place on the cross now the amazing thing about the whole mount moriah episode is the non-questioning uh behavior of abraham 
and the non-resisting attitude of Isaac. It's really hard to contemplate men of that great faith. That, that is supreme faith, and they both had it. And between the father and son, there was perfect agreement and harmony, wasn't there? That's why twice we're told they, both, they went both of them together. Now, the narrative gives no indication of concern on Abraham's part about Isaac's reaction. He's not concerned that Isaac is going to try to resist. It seems that he knew his son very, very well. Well, think about it. All his life, Isaac had heard about the power of God, who had given him life despite impossible circumstances. You know, he shouldn't exist, should he? <laughs> he really shouldn't exist. It was, he, was, he was actually a walking, living testimony to the power of a promise-keeping God, a miraculous working God. Isaac had grown up seeing the life of faith lived out spiritually before him by mature, really mature parents. Spiritually mature. If you want spiritual children, guess what? Be spiritual parents. Get your act together. Grandparents, too. We have a great influence on our children. If, if we want them to be, and don't we? Don't we want them to know the Lord, to love the Lord, and have faith like this? Well, then live it out in front of them. So even though Abraham's heart was heavy, heavy, heavy with the task before him, it doesn't appear that he feared his son's reaction to what he was going to soon learn. And so, too, do you think God the Father ever doubted that his son would lay down his life for the world? You think there in Gethsemane he was wondering, ooh, I wonder which way he's going to go, you know? Um, maybe his human, humanity will win over his deity. He never doubted that his, you know, son would say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So together they approached the spot to build the altar. And when they arrived, it is time for Isaac to understand his part in the worship service. <laughs> and it's not as the song leader. Mm. Looking around, he makes an assessment of the situation. They had wood for fuel, right? Got that? Knife, he sees the knife in his dad's hand. We got a knife for the slaughter. Got fire for the burning of the sacrifice. But, hmm. The most important item for the worship is missing. What's missing? The lamb. The lamb is, there is no lamb. Do you know that this is, you could make a sermon on this. There are so many churches. If you go to look for a church, if you go to another town and you're just visiting and you look for a church, you know, look for a church where the lamb is the center of the worship. Mm -hmm. There are so many, or if you're looking for a Bible study, or if you're looking for a song to sing to your congregation, whatever it might be, always look for the lamb. The lamb should be at the center. There are a lot of churches you can go to, and the, there's fire. There's a lot of emotionalism going on. But the lamb is missing. You can go to other churches, and they're all wood legalism. You know, we do it this way, and this is why, and no, this isn't why. This is just the way it is. <laughs> There's a lot of fire churches. There's a lot of wood churches. But 
That's why I pray every week, may this lesson be full of the lamb. May it be centered on the lamb. That's what you want to ask about every song you hear. Is it centered on the lamb? Amen. Thank you. That's, that's a sermon, isn't it? <laughs> so now we come to the only recorded conversation there is in the scripture between Abraham and Isaac. The only recorded conversation. And it's in verses 7 and 8. Isaac, it begins with Isaac very respectfully saying to his father, my father. To which Abraham responds, here am I, my son. So the emphasis right away in the only recorded conversation is on their father-son relationship, right? Okay, then Isaac asks his question. This is his one and only question during this whole ordeal. Jesus only asked one question, too, of his father during his ordeal. And what was that question? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he knew why he'd already answered that question. And back in Psalm 22, he knew why he was saying it for us. So we knew he was separated, you know, spiritually died for us. He says, because thou art holy, that's why you had to forsake me. One question from each son. That's all. One question. Here's the question Isaac asked. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So then, the subject of this one communication between Abraham and Isaac, father and son, concerns three things, right? What are those three things? Fire, which symbolizes God's judgment on sin. Wood, which symbolizes here the cross. And the lamb. Now, who does the lamb symbolize? Of course, the Lord Jesus, the true Passover lamb, the lamb of God. So truly, the spirit of the living God was directing this conversation. They were speaking, but who was speaking through their mouths? God, the Holy Spirit. It was all so it would point to Calvary. Now, as we watch Isaac climb Mount Moriah with the wood on his back, getting heavier and heavier with each step, can't you in your mind's eye see the Lord Jesus as he is making his way up the slope to Mount Calvary carrying his crossbeam? You picture that in your mind? In Isaac, we see something of what Calvary meant to Christ. But in Abraham, as I've said, we learn something of what Calvary meant to the Father. Now imagine Abraham's face. When his beloved son looks him straight in the eyes and asks, My father, where is the lamb? The wood on his back had been heavy. But when Isaac looked into that familiar, wrinkled, wise face of his father and saw tears in his eyes, Isaac felt the weight of his own cross. The incredible answer. Now, this is the one I said you have to have starred, highlighted, or something or other. In verse 8, the incredible answer that Abraham gave to his son contains so much more than I am sure he possibly knew. This was, again, the Spirit speaking through him. There are at least 
three fantastic truths in his single statement. My son, God will provide himself a lamb. First of all, he is saying that God would provide the lamb. Okay, my son, God will provide himself a lamb, which is true in a double sense, because soon after this, God does provide a lamb, actually a ram. What is a ram? It's a mature lamb, a male, you know, ram has the horns and everything. Uh, So he would provide a lamb, I mean, yeah, a lamb, a ram, as a substitute for Isaac. And then some 2,000 years later, the second part of this prophecy is that in that very same mount, I wouldn't be surprised if it's the very same spot, God also provided the actual atonement lamb with a capital L. Who provided the ram and who provided the lamb? Man? No, God provided the lamb. So he's saying that. And then his statement can also be read to mean that God would provide a lamb for himself. He would provide the lamb for himself. Only God could provide that which would satisfy his own holy justice. Nothing that man could ever, ever uh, offer would satisfy God's requirements. So Abraham was saying, number one, God will provide the lamb, and God would provide the lamb for himself to satisfy his own requirements. And there's yet a third truth. And I don't think that Abraham, I don't know, maybe he did. Maybe he knew he was saying this because he did see Christ's day, didn't he? And rejoiced in it. But uh, and the third truth is, is the most insightful. God himself would be the provided lamb. The Holy Spirit spoke those prophetic words through Abraham's mouth. Uh, and, and he included the two words, my son. So there's so much going on here. It depends on where you put the emphasis of, you could say, my son, God. (laughs) Because he's pointing out which member of the Godhead would be the lamb, my son. Uh, And you could say, my son will provide himself a lamb. You can say, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. You can say, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. You can say, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. I mean, you know, all of the, it's just so true. It's so intricate. It's so deep. It's so amazing, right? That is an amazing statement right there. All right. Um, it's very interesting to, to notice, too, that he doesn't actually answer Isaac's question. What did Isaac ask? Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And what does Abraham answer? He, he basically answers by telling him who would provide the lamb and who the lamb was to be. God himself. If he knew he was saying that. He did say that, but he, I'm not sure he knew he said that. But he doesn't really answer his question. So when does he get the answer to the question? 2,000 years later, there's this bold man who likes to eat honey and locusts. And he's got this long, pointy, spirit-filled finger. And he sees Jesus approaching. And he points at her, and I would have loved to have been there. Second place to Emmaus, you know. And he saw Jesus approaching. And what does he say? He answers Isaac's question. Where's the lamb? Behold! He had a big voice, too. (laughs) 
the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Oh, that gives me goosebumps. <laughs> oh, I would have loved to have been there. So, hmm. Apparently, apparently, whatever Isaac saw on Abraham's face uh, told him he knew. Abraham didn't have to tell him. He instantly knew. He instinctively knew. He, the father knew the son and the son knew the father. So now he knows. God would one day provide himself a lamb that would be himself. But for now, guess who is the lamb? He is. He knew that as difficult as this was for him, it was even more difficult for his father. So in beautiful unity, at the end of verse 8, it tells us again, they, both, they went both of them together. The altar was built. Isaac had no doubt whatsoever that his father was going to carry out the sacrifice when Abraham approached him to bind him. Now, do you think a 33-year-old man could resist a 133-year-old man? Easily. He could take that knife from him and he could just run away. He could just resist. He could, you know, he could get out of there. But he didn't. He didn't. He let his father bind him to the wood altar because he is a figure, a type, of the Son of God who was also bound to his wooden altar, except not with ropes with long Roman spikes, eight to nine inches long. Awful. No resistance was offered by Isaac. And his submission to his father is, again, a striking foreshadowment of the Lord Jesus, who was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Abraham also displayed absolute surrender by his willingness to offer that which was dearest to him. It says he stretched forth his hand. And, of course, the stretching forth of the hands reminds me of something else, too. Although this is the wrong person. This is the father. But it says he stretched forth his hand. He took the knife to slay his son. It's in his hand, and he is ready. So both of them, don't they serve as extreme examples of faith and obedience? In the mind of Abraham... Isaac has been figuratively dead for how many days? Ever since he got that command. He knew he would obey it. So in his mind, he's been dead for three days. Hebrews actually tells us that by faith, Abraham had already offered up his son Isaac, his only begotten son. So what we learn next really symbolizes the resurrection of Isaac from the dead. And on what day was it? The third day. The third day. And the turn of events took Abraham totally by surprise. He was not expecting this. You know what he was expecting? He was expecting that God would raise Isaac from the dead after he killed him. Not before he killed him. So can you imagine a more fantastic surprise than what he... I mean, I am sure the, those two guys laughed all the way back home until they got to the tent door and there was Sarah. <laughs> Where have you guys been for six days? What have you been doing? Nothing. <laughs> well, so as the knife is about to fall, the angel of Jehovah 
cries out to Abraham from heaven and says his name twice. Abraham, Abraham, got to get your attention. (laughs) And for the third time in this account, Abraham says, here I am. And then he heard the most wonderful news I am sure he ever heard in his entire life. Lay not thy hand upon the lad. Because now I know, I know that you fear God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thy only son from me. Confirmation that the angel of the Lord is none other than God, the pre-incarnate Christ. Instead of a lifted knife then, next thing we know is Abraham is lifting up his eyes. This reminds me of Hagar. You know, when Ishmael is going to die because of thirst and everything, the, the well is right there, but she didn't see it. Until the Lord opened her eyes. But it was there. He had provided it. And same thing with the ram. The ram is right there. But he didn't, he didn't see it. And don't you think he would have heard it? A ram caught in the thickets. You know it's got to make noise. But I don't know. Maybe God just put the well there. And put the ram there at the right time. But it says he lifts up his eyes. And he sees the sacrificial substitute. A ram. Which was providentially caught by its horns. In the thicket. A thicket is full of thorns. Hmm. There were thorns associated with the other sacrifice too. The ram is the first fulfillment of Abraham's double prophecy. God will provide himself the lamb. Now at this point, there's what's called a typological change. That sounds fancy, but it just means the type changes. Okay, we had Isaac as the type. Now we have the ram. Isaac prefigures the Lord Jesus Christ in three major ways in his life. His miraculous conception, right? We've discussed all that. He, figured, he prefigured Christ with his miraculous conception. Also his sacrifice, his almost sacrifice here on Mor- at Moriah. And the third way is the way he obtains a bride. The church. We're going to talk about that next time. The most, oh, such a romantic love story. But it's really a picture of Christ and the church, Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, so those are the three main ways Isaac pictures um, Christ. But um, he couldn't complete the picture of the Lord's redemptive sacrifice. He couldn't complete it. I've already discussed why, you know, because he he was a sinner. So he couldn't complete the picture. And the sacrifice of Isaac would never, ever, ever have satisfied God because he was a sinner. So Isaac needed a redeemer, didn't he? He himself needed a redeemer. He needed a sin substitute. And that's why the Lord provided the ram and told Abraham to offer the ram in the stead of Isaac. You see, the ram, being an animal, is sinless. It's sinless. So it could be a sin substitute to temporarily cover sins, like all the animal sacrifices, but they could never permanently cleanse the sins, right? Because they're not our kin. Are you kin to animals? Now, the evolutionists would tell us we are, but we're not. We needed a kinsman redeemer. So, um, the, all right, the ram becomes the new prophetic type of Christ who died in the stead of all sinners. All men find themselves in the place of death, bound by our sins. None of us can do anything to help ourselves because the knife of divine justice is poised over us, isn't it? We are all doomed to destruction apart from a sin substitute. The ram added the critical doctrinal truth of substitutionary sacrifice to this picture and type of Christ that had been missing in Isaac alone. So you have to have both. You have to have, you know, Isaac and the ram. They serve together as a double type. 
Where was the ram caught? I'm almost done. Where was the ram caught in the thicket? By what part of his body? The horns. All right. By the way, the ram is in the prime of his life, isn't he? He's a lamb, but he's not a little baby lamb. He's in the prime of his life, too. And the horns speak of his power. Power. He wasn't caught, also, by um, some part of his body that would cause him to be bruised or broken. What if he caught, was caught by a leg and he's trying to get away? Break the leg. God's provision for a sin substitute was always to be one of perfection, without spot or blemish. So he's caught by his horns so that no, not a bone would be broken, not a blemish on him from the thorns of the thicket. Perfect, again, picture of Christ, you know, whose legs were not broken like the thieves because he gave up the spirit before they did that. Was the ram, did the ram cost Abraham anything? Was it his own ram that he brought with him? No, it was provided by God freely, wasn't it? And Jesus Christ is, you know, he's provided. Salvation is free, totally free. Abraham named the place, if you look at verse 14, um, of that sacrifice. He named it what? Jehovah Jireh. Now that means the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. Hmm. You see, he's looking ahead to a yet future provision, not the ram, because he didn't name the place until after he had sacrificed the ram. So when he names it Jehovah Jireh, he's still, he's looking forward to another provision of a lamb. You get it? He did, he did see Christ's day and rejoice in it. He was looking forward to the lamb, capital L, who would die in the stead of all people. And then Genesis twenty-two fourteen proceeds to declare that uh, where the future provision will be. Where will it be? This future provision of a lamb. It will be in the mount of the Lord. It shall be seen. That's a play on the word Moriah because Moriah means clear vision. It will be in that place that the provision will be made and will be clearly seen by all. Also because it is lifted up in a mountain. Um, so the answer to the question, what shall be seen from the place of clear vision? The answer is the sin sacrifice of Yahweh shall be seen. Jehovah Jireh can also mean the Lord will appear. So there's so much going on here. Here's what it actually, and this is in your notes. Here's actually what it all means. If you put this all together, it shall be seen from the Mount of Clear Vision, Moriah, Yahweh will appear, Yahweh will provide on the Mount of the Lord, my son, God will provide himself the lamb. Wow. All right, if you don't have to go, I got one more thing. This is a study on the types of Christ, and I'm just going to race through them. Types of Christ seen in Isaac. Well, actually seen between Calvary and Moriah. Let's do that. Between Calvary and Moriah. It was the father who led the son to be sacrificed in both. A donkey is involved on the path to the sacrifice in both. Two men, other men, were associated with the accounts of the sacrifices, the two thieves, the two servants. Each son left his father's house to go to the place of sacrifice. Jesus left heaven, his father's house. 
Each son was the dearly beloved of his father. Each son is referred to as the only begotten of his father. Each son is a son of Abraham. Each son was born with a divine inheritance. Each sacrifice occurred in the same mountain range. Resurrection was prophesied ahead of time. Each son carried the wood to the place of the sacrifice. The father was in charge of the instruments of judgment. Each son asked only one question of his father during their ordeal. Neither son resisted when laid on the wood, although each of them could have easily. Both sons were bound to the wood of their respective altar. Both sons were obedient to their fathers unto death. Both sons were in the prime of their lives at the time of their sacrifice, as was also the ram. Both sons had a third day resurrection from the dead. The Lord himself freely provided the sacrifice, the ram and Jesus. The sacrifice was a substitute. The ram was a substitute for Isaac, and Jesus is a substitute for all of us. There's the presence of thorns in both accounts. The ram substitute was caught by his horns, which pictures his power. You see, all-powerful Jesus allowed himself to be caught. When he was in Gethsemane and they arrested him, he let them do that. Remember when he said, I am, and they all fell down like dominoes? Yeah. He he allowed himself to be caught. The ram substitute um, was caught by his horns so that his body remained intact, you know, without blemish or broken bones to aptly picture the sinless son of God. There was bloodshed in both accounts, the ram's blood and Jesus's blood. Both episodes demonstrated God's love. And the last one, both sacrifices were a unique one-time Thing. Did God ever ask Abraham again to sacrifice Isaac? Did God ever ask any other man to sacrifice his son? No. And this ties in with why God got so angry with Moses when he struck that mount, um, rock twice. You know, because the rock is Christ, and Christ was only smitten once for all. So, hope you got some spiritual heartburn. And I hope you don't have an early lunch appointment. (laughs) Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the Lamb of God. We just praise your holy name for being so loving. Such a good, gracious, merciful, kind, patient, wonderful, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipotent God who knew the end from the beginning and you just, we are your children because you have given us a beautiful picture book. And I love stories and I love pictures and you have just filled your book full of them. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus truly is on every page. I pray that you'd open the eyes, lift up the eyes of those who have not seen the Lamb that the lamb would again fill our churches and that he would be at the center of your church, Lord. May the focus always be on the lamb who we love and thank you for his love for us. Now I ask that you go with each woman, put a hedge of protection around her and her family, keep her from the evil one. 
and from the evil influences. If you have to separate us from things, do it, Lord, so that we can be totally dedicated to you like these two, two wonderful examples, your servants, Abraham and Isaac. We love you and we ask all these things in the blessed name of our Savior. Amen.